I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Billington, he said, same job, same house, same wife. Why haven't you fucked your life up like the rest of us? Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here is Stage Door Johnny. Hello, welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life. And life in the theatre. I'm Jonathan Cake, I'm an actor. And my guest this week struck fear into the very hearts of people like me, people in my profession, for half a century. Michael Billington is the joy, hard to put him in the past tense, even though he has sort of retired. He's still writing theatre pieces, as he explains. But for some reason, certainly in my consciousness, he's still present tense. The doyen, the ne plus ultra. <laughs> The cat's pyjamas, the, if you will, the testicule de chien of British theatre critics. Almost sort of synonymous, I mean, almost a verb to Billington. He was the theatre critic for The Guardian newspaper for 48 years. Five shows a week. He thinks it's around 10,000 nights at the theatre. My rudimentary maths makes it more. I think it's more like 15,000. But anyway, whichever way you look at it, it's a life devoted to the stage in a way that I don't think that any of the mad theatre junkies that I've interviewed for this podcast can get anywhere near. And he wrote for the Liberal newspaper, the sort of progressive newspaper in the UK, The Guardian, which means that more than any other critic in the UK, Michael's was the review that everyone read first and cared about the most. Did it get good reviews? You could ask someone and then whatever they responded, you'd more often than not cut to the chase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what did, uh, what did Billington think? So look, as you can tell, Michael means an awful lot to me. Partly because he and I have spent so much time together over the course of my life, not in person, obviously, but just spending every weekday since I was about 12 or 13, poring over the arts page of The Guardian, wondering what Michael had to say about the latest new play. I wrote to him after our chat, and I wrote this. From where I'm standing, you've been the one constant figure presiding over pretty much the whole of my theatre-conscious life, reading you every morning, digesting your take on a show, its relationship to other plays and productions, discussing it with my friends, bitching about you, anything we disagree with, always secretly hoping, when it was our turn, that you, above all others, would approve of what we've done. In many ways, even more than my agent, my parents, my friends, you have been the single figure I've been most in contact with about the theatre throughout my life. (laughs) 
and he was a pretty good guide. Pretty good guide. I owe him huge thanks, really. All right, enough of that. Let me take you to Chile, Chiswick in West London in January of this year, 2024. The River Thames is lapping not far from the door, the front door of Castle Billington, as we settled into his book-lined front room to talk about his lifelong addiction. Gentlemen of the stage door Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Mr. Cake and Mr. Billington to the stage, please. This is your beginner's. Michael, Yes. you're so lovely to do this. We're off? We're off! Turns out this is it. And listen, what I wanted to start by saying was that you've just retired, relatively recently retired, Mm -hmm. from being the Guardian's theatre critic for... 48 years. Correct. And before that, so I think you did break the half century, right? Weren't you, were you not at the Times? For... I was at the Times from 1965 to 1971. Oh, look. And I was their sort of utility player. Right. I would do theatre reviews, right. I would do film reviews, I'd do television reviews, and I'd do interviews. Right. Six years on the Times, well, it, it, and then 46, 48 years on The Guardian. In typically modest way, you've refused to add the two things up, as any self-respecting cricketer would, to get a better <laughs> average. So you did actually, you were a critic for extremely important publications for 54 years correct in total you call it something like 10,000 nights at the theatre which must be a sort of rough arithmetic well I reckon if you go as I did five times a week and you go for you know 40 plus years you know you you would do at least 10,000 nights at the theatre I mean it sounds vast when you add it up but in reality, I mean, people go to the office, you know, five days a week. I simply went out to yes. the theatre five nights yes. a week. Yes. Um, I'm not saying it was routine, but all I'm trying to say is it wasn't any more uh, extreme than most people's working lives. No, I suppose not. But I think to have sustained a career that long in such a particular mode, it must have been some kind of addiction. I think addiction is the right word, actually. And I think... That's why stopping being a theatre critic is quite hard for most people. I mean, I'm lucky because I've, I haven't given up entirely. The Guardian's kept me working on a freelance contract. Right. So I still have to supply, what, 15,000 words a year, right. mainly for the website. And I still do a monthly column in a magazine. So I'm still going to the theatre, but I'm going now once or twice a week, not five nights a week. But that imperative, that going to the office, if you want to yeah. put it like that, that sense of sort of getting back out on the court... The, the sense that it is, you know, I know this very well as an actor, that after you finish the lo- a long run of a play, your body falls off the edge of a cliff. It sort of misses it. It feels at seven o'clock that it should be in an adrenalized state. You should be ready for something. And your body will register to you that it's not, that you are in this strange liminal place of not doing what you're, you're supposed to be doing. So how is your detox Going. You sound well, like you're coming off on sort of a theatre methadone. Well, I've, uh, yes, I've had a very gradual uh, release. I haven't gone cold turkey. In other right. words, I've just you know, gently uh, reduced the number of nights I go to the theatre, which has had some beneficial effects. I was talking to my doctor the other day oh. who said, are you still smoking? And I said, yes, but I'm only smoking five cigarettes a day as opposed to 20 cigarettes a day. And she said, why? And I said, because I don't have a deadline to meet Ah. Uh, five nights a week. And I'm learning to do things I hadn't done for a long time. Sleep is something. I suddenly discovered there is this wonderful thing called sleep. <laughs> because when you're a critic, uh, for as long as I was, you know, you're coming home late at night, you're staying up a bit post-play, you mm. can't quite get to bed. And in my later years, I was having to get up at seven o'clock in the morning in order to file copy first thing in the morning. 
So, you know, my sleeping hours were severely mm. reduced. Now I've discovered you can actually sleep eight hours a night and even an hour in the afternoon and, and get away with it. You can settle down at six and have a drink, which I haven't been doing for most of my working life. Right. In other words, I'm discovering there are compensations would for you, not being a critic. Would you rigorously never drink before going to see a show? I, I didn't drink review? Monday to Friday, no, because if you're going out at six o'clock at night and you, you know, you've got to be match fit, yeah. you understand that as an actor sure. for the occasion, you've got to be sober. So I didn't drink really in the week at all. I then overcompensated at weekends. <laughs> but I'm learning that uh, giving up the theatre, I haven't given it up entirely. This is the point. I've right. gently reduced my workload. Right. And I'm now discovering there are other things in life like friends, um, television, as I say, sleep, drink, eating out, you know, mm. all those things. It sounds a little bit like when Arsene Wenger stopped being the manager of Arsenal. And, you know, he, I think, had terrible difficulty... As as people who are obsessive about their their interest, their work do in adjusting to sort of regular life, but then felt a slight sense that he devoted too much time to the exclusion of all else to this pursuit. Did you have any sense of that when you stopped? I do feel a sort of sense of guilt about this because you know I was working hard, as you rightly say, yeah. um, for all those years. I was not only reviewing theatre every night. I was also doing other things. I mean, I, I did quite a lot of radio work in the daytime. Oh. For a while, I was doing a film column. Um, I was doing a lot of teaching, actually, which people don't know about. I taught at various, four, various American universities. So I, I was working sort of basically um, seven days a week. I didn't spend enough time with my wife, and I didn't spend enough time with my daughter when she was growing up. I have to say she's entirely... Uh, unharmed uh, un well I think she's unharmed and she did get to see some plays you know but I feel I should have been a better family man and a better husband and a better father than I than I actually was but having said that it is you use the word addiction I think that's the exactly right word theatre gets into your bloodstream and it's very hard to detox and get, get it out of the bloodstream I yes think. yes it does it really really does but even by the standards of people's passion and interest Seeing a play mm -hmm. five nights a week for 50 plus years mm -hmm. is an intense level of devotion. Did it ever sicken you? Did you ever, did you ever feel trapped by it? I'm so, what's the word, innocent or naive or uh, immature that I never got bored with the theatre itself. Obviously, I got bored with specific productions. Yes. And there were certain genres that I found unappetizing. For instance, I, I once made the big mistake of writing a column about the kind of theatre I didn't really enjoy. Yes. And I said, puppetry, I didn't enjoy. <laughs> mime, I didn't enjoy. Yes. The result was I then got deluged with invitations to mime festivals in East Anglia or puppet festivals in Scotland or something to overcome this to change your mind. blind spot. In the end, I did actually learn there's more to mime than some loon in a white mask, you know, standing up on the stage, pressing against a wall. Um, mime is a much more rich field than I thought. Even puppetry, I now take on board. Puppetry has um, become very vogueish. It's very vogueish. Every every avant-garde production now uses puppetry. Sure. But no, there were certain genres that I didn't respond to. What what is loosely called physical theatre, I didn't much like because when I went to the theatre, I wanted to engage with ideas, language, text, and all those things. Mm. And I still have a kind of blind spot about so-called physical theatre. But my point is, I was never bored by the theatre itself. Mm. And I suppose it's partly because, A, I never fully grew up. And secondly, because theatre always surprises you. This is the great thing about theatre. You think you know what a playwright is going to say. You think it 
how a music will develop. And then, you're, then you see something that entirely knocks you for six mm. and discombobulates you. Mm. And theatre has that capacity, I think, to amaze and astonish and surprise. Mm. Unlike other media, I mean, I now watch a lot of television, or much more than I used to, and I find television falls, as you, you well know, I'm sure, into uh, standard formulae and standard patterns. Cinema, I think, is much more, what's the word, predictable. But theatre is astonishingly unpredictable. Mm. And if you think of the major dramatists, you know, of today, they constantly take you by surprise, play by play. You know, a Tom Stoppard play, a Carol Churchill play, a David Hare play, a Laura Wade play. You know, they're always slightly different from what they did last time. So theatre has that capacity, I think, yeah. a unique capacity, yeah. keep surprising you. Is it the liveness particularly? Do you also feel, I mean, of course, you're talking about the form can surprise you, what, mm-hmm. what Tom Stoppard or Laura Wade have to say can hit you upside the head in a, in a very unexpected way. But is it also that we are watching a story from beginning to end, we can choose wherever to look, we're in wide shot sort mm-hmm. of all the time, as it were, although directors will direct our attention as though it were in, in close-up. But we have autonomy to see the totality of it or even just focus on one small little detail of it. And in that engagement as a, as a live human being watching other live human beings in space in front of us, we are constantly held in a state of suspended animation. What will happen or not happen or screw up or be triumphant in the next instant? All, all that is absolutely true. We are our own director, our own editor when we're watching a play. Obviously, yeah. as you rightly say, we're choosing where to look. Also, with theatre, there is the capacity for mishap, for embarrassment, yes. which adds to the suspense and the excitement. I mean, all those things I don't need to stress are true. Since semi-retiring, I have discovered, though, one thing, which is that there are lots of inconveniences to the live event, and I, I don't want to sound heretical. No, totally. This but, but I mean, they're fairly obvious. I mean, A, Western theatres are so badly designed that if you've got a very tall man in front of you, who's that lovely actor? Is it James Norton? Do I mean James yeah. Norton? Yes. Who did um, that one? Yeah, who was sitting in front of me at a theatre <laughs> not so long ago and turned around and said, I do apologise, he said, for being so tall, because I couldn't really see the stage properly. Oh, sweet um, of him. So there's that. I think audience behaviour, this is another subject, audience behaviour is getting worse and worse. Uh-huh. What I'm building up to is a discovery that sometimes, and this is more true of opera than drama, sitting in a cinema watching the live relay of the event uh-huh. can be almost, almost as rewarding as being at the live event. And I'll give you a concrete example. I do like opera, and we have a local cinema that gives you Covent Garden and the Met, and I went to see... A Wagner opera, Das Rheingold, and my wife and I paid £22 per seat. Wonderful. We sat in the front row and it mm. was as if Das Rheingold from Covent Garden was being relayed especially to us. About four weeks later, I went on my own to Covent Garden. I paid £220 for my stalls to get on my own, ten times more than I'd paid of in the course. cinema. And I thought, is this experience ten times better than it was <laughs> sitting in the cinema? Right. This is a very heretical argument to make, and I'm not actually devaluing the live event. But I'm just saying that there are now conveniences to sitting in cinemas. Mm. And I would suspect, this must be true of plays as well, it may be equally good or better to sit in the front row of your cinema than to sit in the back row of the balcony in a West End theatre. Well, the pandemic showed us that this economic model is probably not going to go away, right? I mean, they, they, you know, no one could go into the old Vic to see Matt Smith and Claire Foy doing their piece. I think it was a Nicholas Payne piece. Mm-hmm. But they could live stream it and sell tickets at a not 
extortionate rate, as you've just talked about, and sell and, and transmit it to exponentially more people than would ever come to see it during the run of a play. Well, I think this is a, a very big point, actually. I remember the very first transmission of the NT Live, right. uh, and it was a Fedra with Helen Mirren, yes. Nick Heitner production. And I was deputed by The Guardian to go and write about it in a cinema. And I came out, and I met a well-known director, Peter Gill. And Peter said to me, he said, Michael, he said, that was better than it was in the theatre, wasn't it? And I said, well, I take your point, because you got actually the action in close-up. You saw every facet of Helen Mirren's performance in great detail. Obviously, it was a very rich theatre experience. Mm. I wouldn't deny that. But all I'm saying is sometimes, sometimes, not always, the cinema can give you added uh, advantages that mm. you don't get from your theatre seat. Mm. This is not an attack on live entertainment. No, 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 I no. Think my life's watching live shows. All I'm saying is we're now into a new era where it seems to me the yeah. the reproduction of something yeah. can be yeah. potentially as rich as the original. Yes, I do think it's a tiny bit dangerous. I'm, 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 I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Personally, I know exactly what you mean. It's an amazingly seductive idea that you're getting the sort of best seat in the house, as it were, a little bit like when you watch a football match, yeah. rather than standing out in the cold, you know, with 50,000 other people. But I always think that televised theatre, and funnily enough, I was interviewing Philip Lloyd two days ago, who said something similar, is like glossy food photographs. It feels like a facsimile, a delicious facsimile of the real thing, but you can't really taste it. I would suggest that only really being in the room completes the last amount of necessary engagement that allows us to really feel the thing and hear the thing and see the thing. It feels to me like we're closer to being, obviously, to the medium of film or TV, which is basically somebody has mediated what we're watching. I think it takes away that level of autonomy which creates the engagement, the final sort of inch, as it were, in our in our brains. That, our that's hearts. a powerful argument. I accept it totally, but that depends on either you're sitting in a good seat in the stalls, no, for sure. the theatre, or you're sitting in one of those theatres like the Donmar or the Almeida, yeah. where all the spectators sure. are close to the action. All I'm really trying to say is that I think a bad seat in the theatre yes. can be as unsatisfying an experience live as sitting you know, in a cinema, watching it from a good seat. That's all I'm trying totally. to say. Totally. And, and you're quite right. The live event can be incredibly compromised. I was at the National only uh, last week and wanted to gouge my eyes out with a spoon because I was trapped. There was no intermission, no <laughs> interval. And I had that overwhelming claustrophobia that one can only really get, I think, at the theatre when you're watching something you can't endure. I know it's a cliche, but I think audience behaviour is getting worse, actually. And I think the thing is... Theatres themselves are nourishing this. I mean, just two quick examples. I went to see a big show in the West, and perhaps I shouldn't name it, recently. And in the interval, the man in front of me was supplied with a vat of popcorn. Mm. And I mean a vat. It wasn't just a tub. <laughs> it was a vat. And he proceeded to eat this popcorn noisily for the whole of the second right. half of the show. And it was the management that was supplying this or offering it. And then, again, I went to another show in the West End with Sheridan Smith, a famous one woman show by Willie Russell, all about a woman discovering herself on a Greek island. It's a very, very famous play, which I'm ashamed. Oh, I can oh, 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 the one that was made into a movie with yes, Tom Conti and Jimmy yes, Waters. Yes, yes, exactly. That uh, one. Um, it'll come to one of us in a minute. God. But my point is, <clears throat> the management was obviously keen to make sure the audience was happy. It was filled with hen parties mm. <clears throat> who were pissed out of their minds, quite sure, simply. Sure. And so I was watching this play, 
through this sort of filter of all these very happy ladies yeah, who yeah. were just drunk, yeah. quite simply. Yes. And I thought, it's the theatre that is encouraging this. Yes. There was another example, one last example, when Who's Afraid of Ginny Wolf was in the West End and uh, one of the actors said, I'm not going on if the audience is going to be sitting there eating while I'm acting. And I thought, absolutely right. So I think managements need to stop uh, you know, this habit of supplying food and drink at remorseless well, intervals. Well, now we're talking about, you know, the economic... I suppose we weren't quite talking about the economic imperative of how theatre has to adapt. But live streaming or, 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 or recording the plays is certainly... That's certainly a part of why it's become so popular. Not only that you can get a great seat in the house in a, in a way that you might not do at the live event, but I suppose there's also a case to be made, isn't there, Michael, for... for inducing people into the theatre and allowing them to enjoy it unencumbered by what one might call those sort of bourgeois expectations of good behaviour. I mean, yeah. I think there's, you know, in, in, in trying to get a, a younger, more diverse audience, I think there's a general sense that one needs to broaden out the welcome that a theatre can provide for its audience, whatever I'm, that... I'm all for that. I'm all for youth and diversity and encouraging more people sure. to go to the theatre, obviously. But I don't think it's bourgeois to ask an audience to behave with a certain mm. modicum of restraint while right. watching a play, right. not to fill their face with food, not mm. to be drinking all evening, not to be having sex in the stores or whatever. Mm. I think there are certain uh, rules of behaviour mm. in a theatre that I think, it, for the benefit of everyone else, we need to observe. In other words, you should be aware of what what effect your behaviour is having on other people. Yes. And if you're slurping drink the whole time, yes. and I say if you're consuming <clears throat> a three-course meal while the play is going on, yes. I, di I did literally go to Western Theatre and someone ordered in the interval a plate of, I think it was spaghetti or something, and they were then you know, eating this for the second half of the plate. And <laughs> what you got was the aroma of sort of pasta or something coming through. We are going through a social change and it's wider than the theatre in which people no longer want to be simply an audience. Yeah. They want to perform yes. being an audience. And yes. it stands in sport as well as in theatre. And theater. criticism. Well, I'll come to that in a minute, but I mean, in, in the theatre, for example, a colleague of mine, a critic, a fellow critic, we were watching King Lear at the Minerva in Chichester. And when it came to the blinding of Gloucester, this colleague on my right went, oh, you know, <coughs> and screamed loudly as if she didn't know that in the middle of King Lear, you know, Gloucester was going to have his eyes gouged out. She was doing a sort of false naivety, is what I'm trying to say. And I've noticed this happens a lot these days. We both love cricket. If you go to any cricket match, the audience or the spectators are playing the role of spectators. I mean, for instance, famously now, they dress up on certain days at test right. matches and they're encouraged to do so, aren't right, they? Right. This seems to be nonsense, quite honestly. You don't go to a cricket match to dress up and perform. You go to watch other people, you know, with great skill uh. doing something. You also go to meet friends and drink and talk. I understand that. But th it's this idea that no one is content to be a, a, a watcher, a spectator, an audience. Yes. They want to be performing that role. How That's what I'm getting at. Actually. Fascinating. Yes. We should probably move on to a, to a different topic. But I do find this sort of... I'm very interested in your performative <clears throat> critic. Yes. That's really yes. extraordinary. I was shocked thing. by this. Actually. But presumably, she was moved in the way that you, you know, can you never remember involuntarily gasping? In, yeah, but um, she knows she must have seen King Lear well, a dozen times. She's not a beginner, you know. So why was she doing this? Presumably, she was doing it she was, to, to advertise. 
her reaction. I see. That's what she was doing. You don't think she was genuinely moved, no, not for a moment. by the power of no, not for a moment. Okay, I remember when I was at Cambridge doing English. I remember going to a, um, a supervision once with a, a wonderful professor called John Kerrigan, and John had these very fancy rooms in St John's College, and I knocked on his outer door, and I couldn't hear anything. And his inner door was open. They were both slightly ajar. So it was sort of like it was time for my supervision. So I went in and said, John. And from inside I heard. <laughs> so I thought, gosh, what's going on? I, I opened the door a little more. And there was John Kerrigan. It sobs, paroxysms of mm. tears. And I said, John, are you, are you okay? Shall I come back? Is everything all right? No, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I've just been rereading Hamlet. Gosh. And so the point, my point is simply <laughs> yes. that however much exposure one might have to something, perhaps she was consumed by the moment. Well, the only thing the human the, body the, could do was gasp. You're giving her the benefit of the doubt. It's, it's just phenomenal. I don't want to harp on this, but I've noticed that, again, even critics now are starting to play the role. Gosh. I had a colleague who's now retired, and I loved him dearly, and I'm not going to name him. But if it was a comedy, he would laugh uproariously and look round to see that we were right. watching him laugh uproariously. Right. And he accused me, actually, of being totally inscrutable. You know, he said, the trouble with you, Billington, I never know what you're thinking. <laughs> well, I took that as a compliment, actually, because I think I'm not going to give it away, you know, while watching the play. Let them read my review to find out if, they, if I thought the play was funny or awful. But you must have let yourself laugh. Oh, of course I laughed, yes. He did, he did in one column say, even Billington was laughing at this, as if, a, <laughs> as if I was so notoriously humorless. I never laughed. Yes, of course I laughed. But what I'm trying to say is, I did cultivate, if you like, a certain impassivity mm. of a, appearance so that people didn't quite know what my reaction was. Because you must have been aware of being a type of performer in a darkened auditorium, as well as the people on stage. You were a figure that people watched. I think that doesn't happen much in London. I know it happens in New York, because friends of mine who've been on the New York Times, Benedict Nightingale, who worked there for a year or so, said it was awful because you, were, you as a New York critic, were being watched sure. and scrutinised by the management to see I, what your reaction was. I think, you were being I think in London we are much more anonymous, actually, than that. I mean, A, we're not celebrities, and B, there are so many of us... And I don't think management, as far as I'm aware, spy on us. There's Michael, a wonderful line about critics. I always love this line. When critics get above themselves, Robert Robinson on a radio programme said, oh, he said, drama critics, they're sad, anonymous men who get the last bus back to Muswell Hill. <laughs> I mean, that dates it because we're not exclusively male anymore. But, you know, you get the picture. Yeah, of course. I also, Michael, you, a- you were and are a celebrity, and specifically in the business that you were in the business of I reviewing. I would deny that word celebrity because, I mean, it's very flattering of you to say it, but I don't think I was a celebrity. I mean, I went about my business, certainly, and I did it for so long. Obviously, I suppose people knew who I was. But a celebrity is someone you know, who's always on television, whose face is well-known, etc. I, I, I hope I cultivated a certain discreet You absolutely an- anonymity. did. This is un- nothing to do with your unimpeachable conduct as a, as a critic all those years. What I simply mean is, I think of celebrity as someone who attracts a hell of a lot of attention. And because you wrote for the publication, because most actors or people in the, our profession, my profession, are soggy liberals, mm-hmm. you wrote for the soggy liberal paper, yes. which meant that you were the critic for the profession. You were the one that we all read and cared about. And not least that you, you know, I I could go on and I I will do, not least for your extreme depth and breadth of 
knowledge, your exhaustive knowledge of, of, of world theatre and your exhaustive knowledge of past productions and also your deep care for what you were watching. That palpably came through in all your reviews, how much it mattered to you that this would achieve something that you felt was pleasing or worthwhile or meaningful. And so, you know, from my side of the curtain, I think it's fair to say that a good few people might have been slyly giving you a side eye and checking out your reactions <laughs> as you sat there watching. I, I honestly wasn't aware of that. I mean, I, I tried tru- truly. I mean, I sound very sort of, uh, I don't know, I sound creepy now to say this. I tried to be as unvisible as possible in the theatre, not to make a show. I mean, I, there are critics who like to, again, play yes. the role of critics. <laughs> Can I say this? He's now gone. I mean, and I loved him dearly. Milton Shulman, when he was yes. drunk at the Evening Standard, used to stand up in his stalls and gaze around, you know, <laughs> the auditorium. And I remember Jack Tinker saying, one day Milton will find that person he's actually <laughs> looking for, you know. But Milton wanted it to be known. That he was in the theatre. I'm you know, here. Announcing his presence. And there were other critics who were much more flamboyant. I mean, Ken Tynan is the supreme right. example sure. of, of the flamboyant critic who himself was on the stage and should have been on the stage. But there are others like myself, and I think like Benedict and Michael Coveney and, you know, others, who we went to the theatre as a matter of our profession, but we didn't, I hope we didn't, sort of play up the role of critic. I should say, though, having come up with all this sort of modest stuff, the person who made me want to be a critic, it wasn't a real person. Can you guess who it was? It was a fictional person in a famous film, it was Addison DeWitt, as played by George Sanders in the film of All About Eve. Do you remember that uh, film? Yes, of course. And George Sanders, I was only 10 or 11 when I saw the film. George Sanders plays this famous New York critic, and you see him in the film going to first night parties, and he stands around and delivers one-liners, you know, priceless one-liners, and everyone listens to them avidly. And the second thing is, he's always at a party with a blonde on his arm. And in right. the film, it's, the blonde is played by Marilyn Monroe. And I thought when I was a teenager in Leamington Spa, a young man, I thought, gosh, this looks a good life, doesn't it? You know, you go, you go to the theatre, you become a celebrity, which I'm not, you know, and, and you go to the theatre with Marilyn Monroe. Mm. It didn't happen. Like, didn't work out like that? It didn't, didn't quite work out no. like that. But all I'm saying is I had a romantic notion yes. of what a critic's life yes, is yes, like yes. before I did it. When I started doing it, I realised it is a, a rich and a satisfying and rewarding life. But there's also a lot of grind and hard work and, you know, and anonymity sometimes, like I said earlier. Of of course. I mean, grind, my God, 48 years, 10,000 nights. Let's let's go back to a bit preceding George and Marilyn. Do you remember the first time you went to a theatre? I think the first time was Peter Pan. The first event that really made a big impact on me, and I have written about this before. I was seven years old, I think, and I was taken by my parents and some friends of theirs to see Troilus and Cressida at what was then the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre in Stratford-on-Avon. Right. This is 1947, I think, with Paul Schofield. Ah. Not that I knew who Paul Schofield was at that time. But it absolutely hit me for six. The beauty of the language, the sheer imagination of the production, the idea of a play about these mythical or heroic figures. I mean, it just seized my imagination, and I've never got, quite got over that. And I thought, this is the thing. To be part of that world in some way yes. would be exciting. And a lot of my early theatre going was coloured by going to Stratford, later on to Birmingham and Coventry, but Stratford particularly, because I'm talking about a period in the 40s and 50s, pre-RSC, which I love the RSC, but pre-RSC, it was very much a sort of actor's theatre. Mm. 
And when I was in my teens, I saw Laurence Olivier, Michael Redgrave, John Gilgood, Edith Evans, Peggy Ashcroft, you know, great, great, great actors. And I think that was the real turning point. That was the thing that induced me to feel I've got to be somehow part of this world. You wrote about going to see Olivier at Stratford, do Titus Andronicus. Yes, and Macbeth and, and Malvolio. Yes. In one year. In one year. And that was a, this is 1955, I was 15, and I just remember all those performances. This is rather terrifying. I remember particularly his Macbeth and his Titus. The Macbeth especially, in great detail, I could hear in my head now his inflections. So when I see Macbeth on the stage, I think, oh, Olivier did that rather differently. Mm. Um, and he, he was... I don't mean to persuade you, but he was a genius. And what he found was an ironic comedy in Macbeth, as well as all the other qualities. Really? And also he built up to a sense of despair. My way of life is fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf, and that should accompany old age as honour, love, obedience, troops of friends I must not look to have. And on troops of friends his voice soared in that, I can't imitate it, but in that unique way. Uh. And you suddenly realise Macbeth was aware of the cost to himself of what he had done. Using the diphthong of troops. Troops of friends, troops yes. Troops of friends. Oh, it was my a, gosh. It was a great line, but, I mean, that was his genius, to highlight a phrase. It's interesting how actors do that. You know this. I, I'm telling you what you know already. No, no, no. I'm but I remember leaping on several years. Ian McKellen playing Richard II. The line I remember from that is when Richard is soliloquising and uh, he's talking about kingship. And he says, need friends. And again, Ian's voice mm. sort of hit that need friends. Need Even if you're friends. surrounded by power and monarchy, you need friends. Yeah. Interesting that word comes up in Shakespeare. Yes. So interesting that you, the power of friendship. The two examples you quote are both about friendship and about loneliness. But I was turned on by acting. I mean, this is what I tried to say. Yeah. That was the first thing that attracted me about theatre. Yeah. These larger-than-life yes. figures who seemed capable of greater suffering yeah, and greater yeah. joy and greater humanity and greater despair than anyone else. And it really did change my life, I think, going to see all these plays when I was you know, still in my mid-teens. Mm. This feels like a little bit like asking about the sort of progression of people in sports or sports figures from relative... You know, would Len Hutton be able to bat against Jasprit Bumrah <laughs> now, you know, yeah. for example? But it speaks perhaps to the way in which your taste may have changed over half a century that you were writing theatre criticism. Do you think Olivier transported to the Donmar warehouse today would seem absurd or would still make us understand something of what great acting is about? It's a very good question. I think Olivier was so exceptional, he would be intelligent enough if he were now playing at the Donmar. Right. He would scale down his performance, I suspect, right. to suit that environment. Um, he, you know, he was alert enough to do that. I don't know what, anything about his intellect, but he had an intuitive actor's intelligence that I think would enable him to do that. But you're quite right in, when you hint that acting has changed. And I think the difference is that generation I'm talking about were part of an heroic age, and heroism was still a concept we valued. Sure. I think we're now in an anti-heroic age, and actors are more valued, uh, not for their inordinate emotion, but for qualities like irony and wit and intelligence. And if you take an actor like Simon Russell Beale, whom you know well and whom I admire hugely, Simon has that ability to ironise, it seems to me, mm. whatever character he is playing, mm. and to make you see uh, the absurdity or the comedy uh, within that character. I mean, when he played Hamlet, which he did extremely well, I remember he got a laugh at the end on that fell Sergeant 
death, which is swift in his arrest, and a line that other actors might treat as despairing, Simon saw the inherent comedy in it. So I think we look for different values in acting today. Yes. Um, and we're not looking for acting on the same scale as we did in the past because it's changed because of the climate of the times and because of technology and television especially. I've always been curious about what you responded to in an actor. Is it too ineffable to, to articulate? I remember you writing brilliantly once about one of your reviews about stillness. Yes. Are there things that particularly interest you in a performance? It depends on the play, obviously. I mean, in the classics, what I'm looking for is some insight into character, which I had not grasped before. And I think that's one of the great things about the theatre and about acting, that it's a form of permanent literary criticism. Right. And that when you go and see a Hamlet or a King Lear, you asked me earlier about, you know, did one get bored in a sense? No, because if you're going to see a classic, each time it's renewed by the performance of the director. So, you know, you'll learn something new from every Hamlet, Lear, Othello, Macbeth that you see. So the actor will bring, through their own intuition, something you hadn't spotted. That's what I'm suggesting. And I think in modern drama, obviously the actor is then creating something which you hadn't seen before. So the theatre is always renewing itself, it seems to me. But over the course of all those years, did you ever start to think to yourself that you were defining a certain taste in what you wanted from a performer, from an actor? Things that you were particularly drawn to, like, for example, that quality of stillness that you, you talk about? Because there's some actors, of course, who can be give brilliant performances whilst being extremely kinetic. But you might have enjoyed stillness more. Stillness is a quality. Repose is quite uh, difficult, I think, on stage, isn't yes. it? The temptation is to do something and God, move. Yes. And some actors can be quite amazing. Female actors, too. I mean, I'm thinking one or two specifically. Penelope Wilton, I think, has that great quality of intelligent repose. She draws the eye to you, your eye to her, I should say, by the minimal nature of her physical movements. I mean, she's recently playing um, the Queen Mother in a West End play, Backstairs Billy. And again, she didn't do a lot physically, but she kept you riveted by the economy of her gestures. There are other actors, of course. I mean, Olivier was another example who surprised you by his physical danger. You never quite knew in which direction he would move or which direction you know, his gestures would go, etc. I would say there are different qualities I admire in different actors. Right. Repose is one. And I would say clarity of utterance, to use a phrase that oh. Tom Stoppard likes, clarity of utterance in oh. an actor. I'll give you another example. Alec McCowan was an actor mm. I absolutely adored watching because Alec McCowan had the ability to take a line and deliver it into your lap, as it were, yes. into the stalls, you know. He articulated with fierce clarity Mm. in a way that I found aesthetically pleasing and aesthetically exciting. But all actors, you know this, I'm telling you something you know, all actors are different. All actors have unique qualities. In some, it's the dangerous physicality. In others, it's the quiet repose. In some, it's the vocal acrobatics. In some, it's the vocal sharpness. You know, different actors, different qualities. Yeah. You said... When you were having that lovely send-off uh, from the National Theatre, Rufus Norris did a little uh, evening for you, I think, at the National mm-hmm. Theatre, and and some of uh, some wonderful actors did some pieces from some of your favourite plays. You said very feelingly to Rufus that you envied his ability to be able to work in rehearsal with mm-hmm. actors. Mm-hmm. Do you think your responses as a critic would be different if critics could have could see? the process, as well as the outcome. I was once asked this question publicly, or semi-publicly, by Tony Scher. Hmm. The RSC used to have 
meetings when the company would invite a guest and I was invited to talk to the company one day and Tony Scher stood up and said, would it, would it be good if critics could come to rehearsals and see the process? Mm. And I said, no, I think it'd be awful. I think the real benefit, I said, would be if critics could direct. <laughs> and afterwards, there was a lunch afterwards and Greg Doran, was, who'd hosted the whole thing, said, were you serious about that? And I said, absolutely serious. He said, good, because we have a festival called Not the RSC organised by the actors themselves. Yes. Would you like to come and direct? And thanks to Greg, I was invited and I had a handful of very, very good RSC actors. And we did a play, I directed a play in the upstairs at the Barbican, not the upstairs, but in the um, conservatory above the Barbican. Yeah. And I did a Marivaux play with six superb actors. So I do believe this. I think a critic watching rehearsals is pointless. I have done it. Matt Stafford Clark once invited me huh. to watch a rehearsal of a play he was doing. I felt useless. I sat at the back of the rural court. I couldn't intervene, obviously. I wouldn't, it would be presumptuous of me to have spoken. I just felt useless, you know, right. uh, a useless voyeur. <laughs> and, of course, all you're watching is someone laboriously setting up a scene. I mean, it's not easy to watch. So I got nothing out of that. But I said doing a play, and I've now done three or four with real actors, that that is spellbinding. That's insightful to your criticism. Yes. You mean, it means it informs whatever you're going to eventually write because you understand what the process of, of getting under the bonnet is like. Has it made you more sympathetic? David Hare did say you were, you were soft on actors. He did. Do you think that's fair? And has it made you more sympathetic? Did that, those experiences of directing make you more sympathetic to theatre makers? Well, David Hare said I'm soft on actors. Yeah. I, I hope I'm honest about actors, but I've always been, what's the word, sympathetic to actors. I did work in a theatre when I was much younger, for two yeah. years, in Lincoln, yeah. Theatre or Lincoln, as a glorified publicist and then as an occasional director. And I was also part of the managerial team, so I understood something about actors, what actors were going through. And I've always had sympathy and, I hope, understanding of actors. Can I tell you a quick story? Always. Um, <laughs> well, I directed a play. There was a season at the Battersea Arts Centre when four critics directed plays. Oh, yes, I remember it. And I directed a Strindberg play and a Pinter play. And the Strindberg play was called The Stronger. It had two actors in it, both women, and one talks endlessly and the other listens. My instruction to the actress who listens was don't react all the time. Don't keep reacting. Just sit there and let us guess what your reactions are. She followed my instructions to the letter. She then got devastatingly attacked by Adrian Noble, who reviewed the production in The Guardian. And I went to the Battersea Arts Centre on the second night, and I found her sitting in her car, weeping. And I said, please, what is it? She said, I can't, I can't, I just can't go on, you know, after what Adrian said. And I said, look, you know, it's my fault. You, you were doing precisely what I asked you to do. You know, you are still a wonderful actress. And please, 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 you know, get back in there. And she did. I just give you that story as an example of I then saw how actors can be affected by yeah. adverse yeah. comments in public <laughs> what a what a fantastic awful I should say yes. but 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 blackly comic um, a reversal of roles your actress was being savaged by criticism from a famous director whom she might employ my point is I hope I'm not uh, pathetically uh, submissive about performances but I try not to be woundingly harsh about performance. Right. And if I don't particularly like a performance, then I don't mention it. Of course, that's difficult if the actor's playing King Lear, but, um, you know, if it's a minor role, there's no point in savaging. It seems to be someone who is miscast or right. doesn't deliver. But I would say that's very rare. One of the virtues of the English theatre is I think the quality of the acting is 
generally very, very high. I don't often see bad performances, and if I do, it's because the director has somehow misdirected it, mm. as I did with The Stronger. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you think she should have reacted more? Do you think Adrian was right? No, I don't, because the whole point of that play is Sean Thomas played the other actress, and Sean mm. is a very volatile actress, and she she was doing all the hard work, and I wanted right. the other actress to clean up by doing less, right. going back to stillness and repose, sure. my belief in the power of stillness, yeah. except on this occasion it obviously didn't quite pay off. Well, for but Adrian, I, for not Adrian. necessarily for everybody else. But I have to say that the experience of directing has given me, yes, insight not only into acting but into plays. Yeah. I mean, I directed, I've now directed two or three Pinter plays, and I'd written a book about Harold Pinter, yes, of course. but I also felt I was learning more about Pinter's methods from directing than yeah. I had from yeah. spending three years writing a book. How wonderful that you wanted to, as it were, get your hands dirty like that, see things from the other side. It slightly begs the question, do you wish you'd been involved more? I mean, I, I, you know, of course, your famous predecessor, Kenneth Tynan, Olivier, when he was running the National, famously brought him into the fold from being a critic to being not quite a practitioner. But he was a dramaturg. He was, well, that was because Tynan wrote to Olivier, you know, a famous letter to Olivier. Uh-huh. Begging for the job, right? Having savaged Olivier right. uh, in his opening season at Chichester, right? And there's a famous story about Olivier at home in Sussex reading this letter from Tynan, turning to Joan Plowett, saying, "Look, look what the bastard's done! He's asking, <laughs> asking for a job." And it was Joan Plowett who said, "Be sensible, take him on board." Huh? And Olivier decided, "Yes, it's better to having inside the tent pissing out yeah. than outside the tent pissing, pissing in. in." And of course, it wasn't a very wise appointment in the end because Tynan did bring a knowledge of world drama, which Olivier palpably did not possess. But did you ever hanker for, I don't know, Nick Heitner or Sam Mendes to say, <clears throat> gosh, you've got such a depth and breadth of experience. Can I consult it in a way? Can you come into the creative process in some form? No, I didn't hanker for that. I mean, I've never revealed this before, but Trevor Nunn, when he was running the RSC, and I'd known Trevor for many years, did take me to lunch and say, would I be interested in joining the RSC? in that capacity as a dramaturg. And at that time, I said, well, I had so many commitments. I was Guardian Theatre Critic. I was doing radio programmes. I was having a, a very full life. And I just thought, actually, no, I'd rather stay where I am at this stage in my life. Were you tempted? Briefly tempted. And it was very flattering. And I was very grateful for the offer. But going back several years, I mean, when I was at Oxford, I was acting and directing and reviewing. And there was a stage when I, I took myself for a walk. I remember this quite clearly. I thought, what am I going to do with my life? You know, what do I want to do? I want to be involved in theatre in some way. Would it be good to pursue directing, which I was doing at the time, or would it be better pursuing criticism, which I also did? And what decided me quite emphatically was the fact when I went into a rehearsal room, I was always nervous and apprehensive and tense. I gather people always are. Um, When I sat at my desk in my room at Oxford and typed my reviews, I felt comfortable let's put it like that right but not confident but comfortable I thought yes I think I can sort of do this and I mean that amongst other things was what really decided me when I directed a I was nervous and b the results weren't always that good did the comfort ever leave you did you ever panic about not being able to write about something did you ever feel that it wouldn't come or did it always I think all critics have these moments of panic it's quite common when you think oh my god how am I ever going to be able to do this? And it's particularly when confronted by a brand new play uh, that you haven't read it. Uh, it's the first night. 
in those days we were doing on the night reviews you've got till 11 or 11.15 to mm. try and make sense of the new play by Tom Stoppard or Harold Pinter and you think God and you get very nervous and I can remember one occasion and it was a new uh, Stoppard play I think it, uh, it wasn't Arcadia it was one after that and it was at the National Theatre and we had to write our reviews in the National Theatre building it wasn't time to go back to the office and I was in a lift with Charlie Spencer from the Telegraph and we both, we didn't say anything, we just raised our eyes to heaven as if to say, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> We've got 45 minutes in which to try and describe, analyse and interpret a new play by a major writer, you know. And the absurdity of the situation yes. came to both of us. So I think, yes, one had nightly uh, panics, but I never, I hope I didn't panic about the validity of the job or in the end there was something that told me, well, I think I will be able in the end to do this. Were you ever worried about missing history? I know you've famously talked about your your first review of Harold's betrayal mm-hmm. and of Sarah Kane, again, yeah. which most critics missed too. And also, I'm very taken by your idea that essentially artists, the, art, the great cutting-edge artists' imaginations often outrun our ability to receive them. But did that add extra weight to you? Did you ever feel, because of course you had such stature, do you, did you feel that it was incumbent on you to, to not miss the great breakthrough? Yes, one, one is aware of uh, one's fallibility. But I can tell a particular story about Sarah Kane and Blasted. Mm. Yes, I absolutely wrote a rubbish review on that. It was facetious and silly and ironic and it shouldn't have been. And then everyone else's review of that same play, Blasted, was, was also... Dismissive. Dismissive. A, few year, a year or so, no, several years later, I was on a panel in Italy, in Rome, I think it was, British Council panel, on a Sunday night with people from the British Theatre. And all the questions from the audience were about Sarah Kane. And I did my usual, oh God, Sarah Kane, I feel so ashamed of my review. I failed to grasp that she had a moral imperative and she was a serious writer, blah, blah, blah. Over dinner afterwards, James MacDonald turned to me and said, for God's sake, Michael, stop beating yourself up about your failure to understand Blasted. He said, I directed the play and I got it wrong. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, with Blasted, if you remember that play, he said, you you should imply in the first half the violence that's going to come in the second. Mm. And it was let the audience know there was a civil war going on outside. He said, when I directed it the first time, I didn't do that. It was like two separate plays. But it was very humbling to hear a director say, Mm. you know, to me, admittedly privately, uh, that he, you know, misunderstood the play. So I felt a little more reassured. There's a terrible tagline to this story. This was a Sunday night in Rome. Uh, on a Monday morning, the following morning at about nine o'clock, my phone rings in my hotel room, to, and it's the Guardian say, Sarah Kane has killed herself over the weekend. Could you send us 600 words? We would talk about Sarah Kane obsessively that whole weekend, and it was the very weekend she died. Gosh. But I was very touched by James's honesty in yeah, saying that yeah. directors misinterpret plays yeah. as well as critics. Yeah, yes, of course, of course, of course. The, the betrayal one is another example. I mean, that was just lack of perception on my part. My argument was this is a play, you know, a play about middle-class adultery. And, you know, we've had all that for years, Hampstead intellectuals screwing each other, uh, <laughs> you know, and I dismissed the play. And, of course, I've since recanted and written several reviews. And became... Close, very close to Harold. But I recanted to the point where Lady Antonia Fraser, Harold's widow, now says, for God's sake, Michael, don't feel every time you review betrayal, you need to advertise your failure the first time. We, we know you got it wrong. Don't <laughs> you keep telling us. <laughs> when, was it for that play that he won an award? Yes. And, 
there was a good story about this. Yes. He, he won the, what was it, Society of Western Theatre Award, right. whatever it was. And it was a big event. It was a big dinner, and I can't remember where, but, you know, there were a thousand people having dinner in one huge hotel. And Harold stood up and said, I think I'm the most surprised person in this room about my getting this award, except perhaps a one person. There was a pinter pause. Michael Billington. <laughs> a thousand heads turned towards me to look at what I'd done to offend this man. I should say I got to know Harold rather better. You did. That. Well, that's an interesting, very interesting. You wrote a wonderful biography of the authorised biography of him. There is a story to that, which yes, I please. think I could tell. Well, I mean, I was very happy to do the book and I was... I got to know Harold, I got to know Antonia, and, you know, it was a rich experience. Mm. It, it was a privilege to do that book. A few years later, Antonia, who I know very well, says to me, Michael, of course, you weren't supposed to do that book. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, what happened was there was a man called John Campbell who was begging Harold to write his biography, and Harold didn't want a biography um, by someone he didn't know. And he said, well, we've got to put this man off. What should we do? I know, said Harold. We'll think of someone else. We'll say someone else is writing the book. And we'll think of Michael Billington. He'll never do it. He's far too busy. He doesn't want to do it. We'll say Michael Billington's doing the book. So that was it. <laughs> and then, then, then I have lunch with Harold, and I do accept the offer to write the book. But I love the idea that I was there as a sort of decoy <laughs> yes. to deter someone else. Yes, as a MacGuffin. <laughs> yes. And then it turns out you, you took the job. I took and, the job. <laughs> and, and you became very close to him. And, yes. and um, you know, I speak feelingly, having played for his cricket team for 20 years, and yes. what an extraordinarily extraordinary man he was and perhaps just before I ask you what I was going to ask you about critics getting too close to practitioners or or whether there's any danger in that I mean I I think of Harold much more than I was expecting to you know of course he was a titanic figure Mm -hmm. 20th century theatre but I think there's something about his integrity his ferocity of I suppose political commitment but also something of that extraordinary artistic and moral steel that he had <laughs> that I feel I, I, I miss from the landscape of public life now. Do you know what I mean? It's I do. A... I think everyone who knew Harold has that same reaction to yeah. him. We, everyone misses him terribly. And they miss his company. They miss all those qualities you mentioned. I mean, just a simple thing. If you had lunch with Harold, you know, you could talk about, you would talk about literature, politics, the theatre, women, cricket, obviously. Everything under the sun. A lunch with Harold was always a tour de raison of what was interesting in the world at that moment. And I think integrity is the, is the key word, actually. Yeah. I think he was, he was scrupulously honest and above board, which yeah. is why, of course, he often was dangerous company, yeah. you know, socially. He could, could be, I'm told. I loved him with a passion, but he was the single scariest man <laughs> I have ever encountered. I got away with it because I, he... You know, he loved my commitment to his cricket team and occasionally my, my ability to score some runs. Mm-hmm. But I do remember one time, it's a complete digression, I hope you'll indulge me, Sam Mendes and I drove to a cricket, a Gaiety's cricket match. He was, the, you know, as you know, the presiding eminence grease of this team, this team that was named after the Gaiety's Theatre. And uh, we were a tiny bit late, which was a huge, no, no, entirely our fault. And Harold was umpiring. He was, as you know, the most one-eyed mm. umpire. You're supposed to be, of course, completely impartial. But his trigger finger would come up when we were bowling yes. and anything hit the pads or there was a faint sort of swish of bat and anything might have been perhaps nicked. He was, he was a profound liability to the sort of entente cordiale between teams. Anyway, 
he looked up to the pavilion where we came in. We changed into our whites very quickly. And uh, he came in. And he passed me. And I was somehow... I, I still am like this with sort of people who are rather pugnacious. I'm drawn like a sort of moth to his flame, <laughs> to say the most... The sort of most inappropriate thing. And in this case, it just happened to be, Hello, Harold, how are you? Mm-hmm. Now, famously, he hated the question, How are you? <laughs> he, he sort of muttered, Something. And walked off, stalked off into the pavilion. Came back. And I, again, sort of, you know, the bumptiousness of youth, I said something stupid like, Sorry, I didn't, I didn't how are you? How are you doing, Harold? He said, Okay, 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 okay. He said, Well, look, first thing, I hate that fucking question. I never know how to answer it. How am I? How are you? I don't know. How, is it? how are any of us? It's pointless, meaningless. He said, and the secondly, if you must know, I think I'm going blind. <laughs> <laughs> and I said something along the lines of, oh, uh, blind, <laughs> blind, like, goodness, that sounds terrible. Like it sort of comes and goes or... Or like, like, like an endless night. You didn't night. leave it alone. I said I did not leave it alone. Oh, you could, I find I couldn't with Harold. Or like an endless night, I said. <laughs> and I think the phrase, like an endless night, rather appealed to him. Uh-huh. Because he sort of, his lip curled, sort of sardonically, with an almost smile. And he said, mm, not quite like an endless night. Not yet. It was sort of a line from a pin to play. And I scored some runs in that game, so I saved myself. But bloody hell. But these flashes of anger were justified quite often. I mean, I have, oh. a, I'm afraid, a parallel story to yours, and it's almost identical in some ways. I was at a famous summer party. This is in Harold's final years of his life, actually, and I was chatting to Tim Blake Wurtenbaker, and Tim Blake said, shall we go over and chat to Harold? I said, yes, let, let us do that. So we trot over to Harold, and Tim Blake again begins with the same question. Oh, God. Oh, Harold, how are you? How the fuck do you think I am? Was Harold, who then was sort of sitting semi-paralysed and couldn't yes. move out of his chair. Oh, which, I mean, you know, in retrospect, I suppose his, his, his response was <laughs> entirely understandable. But I, I, didn't, I never found needless anger in Harold. I, maybe mm. I was lucky, actually. I mean, we had a decent, jolly working relationship. We had a very strange relationship because he had this uh, study, little house, actually, at the back of his main house. Yes. And we do a sort of box and cocks. I would be allowed to sit there in the afternoons from sort of when he, he would work there in the mornings, and I would go in at two o'clock and sit there from two till four thirty or whatever and read all his mm. old reviews. He kept all his cuttings uh, immaculately, or his secretary did. I mean, he was helpful and gracious to me. And mm. say, when the one occasion when he did snap, I, he was entirely right to do so. Speaking of um, bad behaviour in the audience, I saw him eject people who were coughing. Mm-hmm. Merely coughing. I mean, mm-hmm. coughing can be annoying, and particularly something you feel like you could control that until the end of a line or a scene change or something. But he would. I remember in um, was the one. Was it Moonlight? Is that the right? Yes. Play. I think it At is. The Almeida. Yes. He marched people out. <laughs> go, go and cough outside. It was fantastic. God, he is. We shall not look upon his like again, eh? No. no. But it was this quality of. I, I would come back. Integrity. You said, and I would. I would add loyalty. Hmm. I think. He didn't give his loyalty easily to people, but once he did, because they were good cricketers or good companions or whatever, he would be unflinchingly loyal. I can just tell one quick example of this. I was feeling incredibly unwell. I was going to have, is it an endoscopy? Yes, it was. Yes. On a Monday at the hospital. And the hospital implied I didn't need um, an anaesthetic, you know. Real men didn't didn't need anaesthetics. So I thought, 
This is odd. I said, I know. Who shall I ring? I'll ring Harold. This is a Saturday afternoon, about three o'clock. He was happened to be there. I said, Harold, I'm due to have an endoscopy at Charing Cross Hospital on Monday morning. They say I don't need an anaesthetic. What do you think? He said, don't be such a bloody idiot. Of course you have an anaesthetic. It's otherwise, you know, this thing is being thrust down your gullet. <sighs> You'd be mad not to have one. I thought, well, if Harold says that, then that sanctions it. But he, my point of, it, of the story is he could be very helpful on yes. practical matters to yes. do with things like health and well-being, as well as occasionally socially very... Yes, um, it took care of you, it sounds yeah. like. I'm very, very conscious of time, Michael, and, and of taking up your, your still very precious time. But listen, for all your extraordinary breadth of experience, and as I said before, your great, great love of the theatre, which came palpably through in every review you ever wrote, your, your, your care for it and your, your need for it to be something that asks serious questions about what you want and what someone should want from a piece of art. I'm going to put it to you that you don't really know what theatre is. And the reason I say that is because you only ever, I'm assuming, went to press nights. Now, I don't know whether this has ever occurred to you before, but Simon Callow once said that, that the history of British theatre is, in fact, mm -hmm. the history of one night in the run of a play. And unlike the, the system in, in America, where critics tend to dribble in for sort of over roughly a, a week period, so you never quite know where they're in, though, of course, you always know when the New York Times is in. In this country, in our country, everybody comes, all the family, the friends, and the critics come on this one sort of hellaciously uh, <laughs> intensified night of scrutiny, which is known as press night. Mm -hmm. So a bit like Billy Connolly used to say about the Queen, he used to say she thinks the world smells of fresh paint <laughs> because wherever she went, you know, people were frantically <laughs> decorating yes. in front of her. You must think the world or the theatre smells of fear and forced laughter, the sound of forced laughter. I mean, did you ever think that that was an invidious way to experience well, I would, I would challenge what you say in two ways. One is that I was a theatre goer long before I was a critic, so therefore I got used to going to Thursday matinees where there was half-empty theatres or whatever. I've seen theatre in all its manifestations. Right. And having worked in the theatre, having worked in Lincoln, I knew what an empty house looked like because we used to have seriously empty houses for most of the run. So there's that. Secondly, the, the critical pattern changed in my lifetime. And in the last 10 years, say, of my tenure we were being invited to go to previews, ah. not simply to the press night. Okay. And now, I mean, it's almost de rigueur for any major production that critics do not go on the press night. Well, this and I've discovered why, because lately I have been on the so-called gala night, they now call it, the ah. opening night, right. and it is becoming more and more and more horrendous. <laughs> you know this well. But what happens is, A, the curtain is advertised at 7. Right. If you go up at 7.25, you're lucky because the C-list celebrities are all out in the foyer doing air kissing <laughs> with each other. Um, the show starts. I had a classic example the other night. I, I did go to the opening gala night of Sunset Boulevard. I mean, A, there was this mini celebrity audience and some genuine celebrities. But secondly, the, the forced rapture. It was a very good show, but individual numbers mm. were getting standing ovations. Right. I mean, I, I thought this was insufferable because the rhythm of a show, musical or play, mm. depends upon continuity. Mm -hmm. If you give applause, standing ovations, not just applause to every single number, you're disrupting the rhythm of the show. 
And I thought, this is so artificial. Do you ever go back? Do you ever go back to see, revisit a play and see how it's grown or changed? I wish I did. I used to when I was, again, an unpaid theatre-goer. And it was particularly revealing with certain actors. Michael Redgrave is the supreme example. Always at his worst on the first night. Uh. Always. Because I don't went through nerves or whatever. I remember his Hamlet at Stratford, which I saw when I was 18. First night, it seemed all over the place. I went back twice to see it. The third time, it was one of the best Hamlets I've ever seen in my life. Because he had sorted out the excessive detail he put into the first night, etc. No, I understand Simon Callow's point. The history of the theatre is the history of its first nights. But I think that is changing because I say the pattern of reviewing is changing. Let's talk about this. Is it possible to say what the shows are in your extraordinary history that have changed you? That's a profound question. I've told this story very often. When I was 17 or whatever, I came up to London to see Look Back in Anger, not in its first year, in its second year, I think, uh, as a schoolboy. And I came up from Leamington Spa and I was going to the Royal Court, second house, the five and eight performances in those days. On a Saturday night, I stood outside the Royal Court as people came out of the first house, looking at their faces. I wanted to see how they had been changed by Look Back in Anger because I had this romantic notion this play was going to cause people to revisit their lives. I mean, obviously, that's not how theatre works. You don't come out of theatre saying, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a new human being, I'm changed. But I think any first-rate theatre has the capacity to, what was it, an American critic said, rearrange your sensibilities, mm. rearrange your consciousness. Yeah. And I think plays and musicals, at their very best, I mean, force you either to examine your own life and your own failings and your own fallibility, or to look at society and its failings and its weaknesses. If a play can make you do both, then it's a masterpiece, I suppose. But I mean, what I'm trying to say is, I mean, if you think of all the really first-rate playwrights of our time, whether it's Pinter or Carol Churchill or Lucy Kirkwood or whoever, you come out of their plays thinking they have perceived something about the human character or human behaviour that needs examination. A David Hare play will make you look at the way society is structured, or a James Graham play more recently. So I think any theatre that doesn't make you ask some question about yourself or the world around you is incomplete, let's put it like that, Mm. actually. And and none that you felt hit you with the force of a sort of personal revolution? Well, personal revolution is difficult. I I think what you find in plays is a reflection of your own Mm. dilemmas. The first time that really hit me, I can be very specific about it, was seeing a famous production of Uncle Vanya at Chichester that Laurence Olivier directed, and Laurence Olivier, Michael Redgrave, uh, Joan Plowright, Rosemary Harris, you know, a glittering cast. And it was in the first and second season at Chichester, 1962-63, I think. And I came down all the way from Lincoln to see it. And I remember thinking, that play is a reflection of the deep unhappiness that I, as a confused whatever I was then, 22-year-old, was Mm. feeling unhappy in love, unrequited, you know. I thought, gosh, this play understands exactly the passions I'm going through. I mean, it's absurd. There I was, identifying with a 47-year-old Russian neurotic in the shape of Uncle Vanya, but I thought Chekhov understood precisely Mm. my own emotional confusion. And I think plays continue to do that, actually. Whether any one play sent me out of the theatre saying, no, I, 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 can't, I can't think of one single play that made me think I'm going to give up my worldly goods or I'm going to behave right. like a better human being. But every play does something, if it's any good, as I say, to modify your sensibility. Yeah. By the way, Shirley Valentine. Shirley Valentine, thank you. So sorry, it just lodged, came quite. suddenly like a light bulb. Do you 
have any idea who a bloke called Peter Marks is? No. Feeling mystified, not, as not well you that. might. Well, he was, until relatively recently, the theatre critic for the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. Now, Peter Marks, admired critic, took, I think, a buyout from the paper, and now the Washington Post has no theatre critic. Oh. I would argue one of the great newspapers of the world, yes. someone who works for Jeff Bezos, or presumably maybe even Jeff Bezos himself, who owns the Washington Post, has decided they don't need one. How sanguine or what sort of... What do you feel about the future of criticism, perhaps theatre criticism in, gen- in, in particular, in a, in a world where how we get our news is so increasingly atomised? I don't think it will disappear, despite the Washington Post, which is a tragic story, because, A, there's so much going on in the theatres. It needs some kind of, someone to discriminate between what is worth seeing and what is not seeing, even on basic economic terms. Audiences need some kind of information Mm. about what to see, what not to see. Sure, it has a commercial aspect. Yeah, absolutely. Secondly, I've said this many times, but I think criticism somehow completes the cycle of creation. The writer writes the play, the director, the actors, the designers interpret the play, they stage the play. If there is no reaction to that, none at all except from friends and audiences, I think everyone is left incomplete and dissatisfied. The worst letters I've had and the angriest letters have always come from artists whom I've not reviewed rather than artists I have reviewed. In other words, there's a frustration, is there not, if your work is not being evaluated or discussed publicly. Nothing worse than being ignored. And I think for a certain generation, it's print. I remember a very fine actor, Michael Pennington, uh, saying to me once, he said, you didn't review an Ibsen play he'd done at fairly sort of, uh, you know, fringy London theatre. I said, well, I did, Michael, but it was only online. He said, oh, it doesn't count if it's only online. It wasn't in print. (sighs) Therefore, I felt it hadn't been reviewed. And artists get incredibly, as you know, hurt, wounded and angry if their work is not discussed publicly. But I think, above all, for the need for public information, criticism will survive, but it will take different forms and different shapes. One thing that's changed, and we haven't even mentioned that, is the idea of star ratings on the review. So you have now an instant guide to whether this play is uh, worth seeing or not. Did you bridle when you were told you had to have one? I bridled then and I bridle now at the faith of thought. And as a reader, I bridle because I want to read a review to make up my own yeah. mind as to what the critic is saying. I don't want it to be slapped on the review. And also there is the terrible temptation. If it's a four-star, five-star review, you read it. If it's a two-star, one-star review, you read yeah. it. If it's a three-star review, you think, oh, well, you know, do I need to read this? Do I need to go, in fact, to the mm. play? Star ratings are, I think a corruption of reviewing, actually. You know, the reader should elicit or decide what the critic thinks from reading the prose, not be told in advance. And decide where they intersect with it, because there may be things that you're pointing out in a nuanced review that may really appeal to them. In a way, as you say, that when you get that middle star rating, it's very easy to just dismiss it without investigation. I know of one newspaper, and I have to be very careful what I say here. Don't. Where the art editor said we're not having any three-star reviews, if you could possibly avoid it. Oh, wow. And the critics were instructed, the theatre critics certainly was instructed to do either low ratings or high ratings. God, is it a hit or a miss? Yeah, so when I did raise this point with a particular critic, I said, I was puzzled by your four-star review last night. She said, well, that's the editor's decision, the arts editor's decision. Wow. We have to be either up or down. You know, we can't be in the middle. That's extraordinary. And as we both know, a lot of theatre 
occupies this sort of strange territory where it's not a masterpiece and it's not a flop. Most um, of them, yeah. Most of them, yeah. So that's why that's why star ratings are, I, I use the word corruption of yeah. critical judgment, and I think they are. But there's no getting away from them. Editors demand them. Michael, I always admired how your reviews aspired to being essays. Even given the limitations of the amount of copy that you could write, they aspired, it seemed to me, to put them in context, say something insightful about them, and you know, communicate then beyond that what, what you felt worked, what didn't. But I, 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 there's a lovely thing you wrote, just to finish off. You wrote, once the concept of the critic as artist mm-hmm. has pretty much vanished. It's a vain thing to say, of course, but I think we should still aspire to that. We are reviewing one art, but we are trying to create another one. Well, all I can say, Michael, is I think you came as close as anybody ever did to making criticism into an art form. Well, I'm very touched by that. But I'd seize on one word you just used, Mm. context. And I think that's a crucial word. I mean, if young critics come to me and say, what are we we doing? You know, how do we do it? I say, for God's sake, try and put whatever you're reviewing in context. Mm. The context of the writer's back catalogue, as it were, the context of the actor's career, the context of the theatre's history. Plays do not exist, or shows do not exist in isolation. They're part of an ongoing story. Mm. And I think part of the critic's job is to give them their place in history and say, yes. where do these shows belong? Yes. What is their background? Where, are they, where do they come from? How does a new Tom Stoppard play relate to previous Tom Stoppard plays? I keep coming back to Stoppard's example, but he's a very good one. Yeah, which is where 54 years of personal knowledge comes in handy. I'm just going to finish on one story. I, I am bounded on stage at the press night of... Coriolanus, which mm-hmm. we already talked about when I did that at the Globe in, in London. God knows, I can't remember when, 2009, I think, perhaps. And um, it's a very particular venue, but it also gives the performers, Dominic Dromgoul used to talk about it, this sort of oddly hallucinogenic sense of euphoria mm-hmm. on stage, which can be very deceptive and very easy to sort of be lulled by. And you start to sort of do this sort of incredibly relaxed back for performance because you think this sort of swaying mass of Swedish tourists in front of you <laughs> are all hanging on your every word. It has this odd rock concert mm. feeling to it, which can make for <laughs> incredible self-indulgence. Anyway, it was the opening night of this, of this thing and, and, and I had I'd played Coriolanus again later on in New York and uh, I had loved the experience of it so much. Dominic had insisted that we end with a jig. I was murdered you know, this uh, Coriolanus is assassinated and he fall and I fell into the crowd and sort of did this crowd surfing and then I had to come back for this absurd Elizabethan jig, which mm. I said, tough guys don't jig. <laughs> but he was like, no, trust me, the jig would be great. And indeed, when I come on for the jig, it was like, you know, sort of Rolling Stones walking mm. on stage in, in concert. And there was this wonderful sort of euphoria in the place and I was completely caught up in that. And my mother and father were in for that night, both deceased now. And I blew them a kiss. I was sort of so wrapped up in my own experience. I blew them a kiss. And then immediately realised, just as I was doing it, that you were sitting right in front of them. (laughs) So, so, to all intents and purposes, it was as though I was sending a bus out to my favourite theatre critic. Well, I was mortified and have been ever since, all those years in between. But now that you're no longer a theatre critic, and now I've spent some time thinking properly and reading about you, I couldn't be happier that I sent Blue you a kiss that night, or seemed to, 
because I and all my generation of, of theatre practitioners owe you a huge amount. Well, I'm very touched and moved by what you said, and I just hope that my review of Coriolanus reflected the <laughs> warmth of your uh, warmth of your gesture. I think it was me. three stars. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/achieve today. All right, there he goes. Michael Billington has exited the stage door, ladies and gentlemen. How wonderful to talk to Michael. Thank you so much, Michael, for your time. Thank you for for delving back into that extraordinary half century of the theatre going. The inexhaustible surprise of the theatre. What a lovely and perfect phrase, really, for what it is. And if anybody demonstrates that the surprise is inexhaustible, my God, you've done, I mean to still be as bright-eyed and bushy-tailed about what the theatre can promise when the house lights go down and the stage lights come up, when everything is potential. He still seems as rapt and excited about that moment as when he started being a critic 54 years ago. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Yes, it was wonderful to talk to him. It really was. And as I said, he's really been a titanic figure in my life. And I know that of many others, my whole profession, really. Thank you so much to my producer, my brilliant producer, Ben Backhouse. Thank you to the musicians, Iggy and Phoebe Cake. Thank you to the stage manager. Thank you so much to you for listening. Next week, my guest will be the brilliant theatre and film director and opera director. But I'm going to talk to her about her theatre directing, Phyllida Lloyd. She talks to me about going from Mamma Mia on stage and on screen to a verbatim play last year at the National Theatre about the terrible tragedy of Grenfell. Please join me next week. Phyllida is a fascinating person and we had a fascinating conversation. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.